week 10 of Seize the Moment. This is uh, taking a look at a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Now, let me just say this about uh, something that I just have been kind of meditating on this week. And that is, we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, right? We believe that uh, the Scripture is God-breathed. The intent, right, that, that, that should be on the heart of every person that ministers is that the things that they minister are God-breathed, okay? The difference between me being in here right now, seeking God and praying that His his truth would be revelation, that his truth would be kind of brought forth in this room. The difference between what I might be doing in here or a minister around the world might be doing and what we find in Scripture is that the, the truths that were compiled into Scripture, we believe those to be truths for all people applicable into every life, right? But what might be ministered in a room might have truth that goes beyond the room, but it's specifically uh, meant for, okay, there we go. Yeah, great. Thanks, Quinn. Uh, it's specifically meant for the people, right? So there's not this intention that says like, oh, well, you know, the Bible is from God and ministers are just kind of, you know, like fumbling their way around. Definitely, I would say, potentially are some that do that. But the goal of a pastor, the goal of a teacher, the goal of, uh, of a minister is to hear from God and then to properly teach out of the Word and then to to tie in and make it relevant culturally. And this was the same formula that Paul used when he was being led by the Holy Spirit to uh, instruct. So when he's doing these things, he is tying them into some cultural events. And so I say that to say that as I dive into this today, I'm going to be covering some cultural things uh, that, again, I believe are relevant uh, to the Scripture, but I think also the Scripture helps us better kind of put into perspective of some of the things that we see happening culturally around us. So uh, Paul begins this whole process writing to the church, telling them that they're doing a good job, right? So that establishes something for us, that when we are looking at Ephesians and the instruction that is being given to the people in Ephesians, we are doing it through the lens of a group of people who love Jesus and are walking it out pretty, pretty decently, right? So Paul's really good about calling out when he writes a letter saying, hey, I heard that there is sin among you and you're tolerating it and this isn't okay. And, and, and in this specific instance, he's writing and he doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. Instead, what he's telling them is he's telling them that they are doing a really great job. And so he begins to break down those some things, some things that they need to be concerned with to make sure that they don't end up in the same place as, say, the churches that are in the region of Galatia, right? So uh, he lays out this uh, doctrine of, the, uh, of church unity and the importance of the church being unified, that we should be uh, committed to each other, submitted to one another. And then he comes into this place where there is a call to fully reject sin. And and, and here's what's, what's significant to me about this is that this call to reject sin is not that, hey, I've heard you're sinning and so you don't need to do it. It is a call for the people in the church in a healthy place to themselves call out sin, right? So, so it's not just the, the, the purpose of Scripture to call out sin and it's not just the purpose of the pastor to call out sin, but it is actually the responsibility of the believers to have the, the understanding paired with the boldness to be able to say, hey, that is sin, right? I, I get it. That's very difficult and very uncomfortable because it's almost like walking out into the firing line, you know, in certain seasons of life, certain cultures, because as you begin to go, hey, you know what? I just personally believe that's wrong. Even though you are doing that from a position of love because you want to see them set free, it is received as hate because what we want is we want acceptance. We want somebody to say, everything you're doing is exactly right. Everything you're doing is perfectly okay. And that just might not be the case. Uh, and so there's this call to reject sin 
And then he comes back into this idea of unity and them coming together. And last week, we laid out uh, his instruction that really falls down to husbands and wives and what the model of the home looks like is really to be a reflection of what the church should look like in the way that it relates to Christ. And so it's a really, he uses this language of it's a mystery, right? It's a beautiful mystery. So uh, I've titled today's message, A Difficult Reality, Difficult Reality. And I, I got to tell you, um, I, I feel like, and, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like I, I'm, I'm picking, I'm going through, I'm praying, and I'm like, God, what would you have us teach? And so I'm choosing books of the Bible. And every time I pick one, I'm like, oh, this is going to be lighthearted. It's going to be fun. I'm reading through it. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be really simple. And then as I begin to really pour in and study and break it down and God's revealing things to me, it just always seems like, man, this has got some like <laughs> intensity to it, right? And, and I think that the reason that the intensity is felt is because of uh, culture, because of the climate of the world around us. And so today is going to be one of those days where there's just some difficult things for us to kind of uh, process through. Uh, so verse one of chapter six, okay? So we're in chapter six here, final chapter of this letter. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now, what I'm going to lay out right here is not the difficult reality, right? I don't have any problem preaching this to my kids, okay? All right? But there is something that is laid out in these verses that will play a major role in the, in the, in the next topic, okay? So we have to track through this really well to be able to get to that place. He uses this word here, obey, okay? Obey is not the same as submit. Now, he has just gotten done using this language, submit to one another, be submitted, show submission within the church. There's submission within the home. There's submission before Christ. And then he comes in and he uses this word obey. It's not the same thing, okay? Submitting is this mutual thing that's taking place among equals, but this idea to obey is to listen attentively and to conform, okay? Submission, right? looks a little bit different. Obeying means, hey, you know what? You're going to have to listen to what's being said, and then you are to do it. So there is an equality between a husband and a wife that does not exist between a parent and a child. When we're talking about a husband and a wife, we are talking about this mutual submission within the home. If you weren't here last week, go check that message out online. But when we are talking about the relationship that comes between a parent and a child, we are talking about something that is different because there is not this equality that exists between a husband and a wife. So he says what? He says, obey your parents. Now, who are the parents? Well, in the Greek, this is a plural word used in every context to depict a father and mother. So inside of Scripture, it's consistent all the way through. Whenever this word is used, it's always used in conjunction with a picture of a mother and a father. Um, and so this further conveys the mother and the father equality, right? So parents, you're together. You are doing this thing unified, okay? You are to be unified, and therefore you exert influence and instruction over your children, all right? And then he says, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, right? So what, what, is, what, is, what is he communicating? He, this is the reason that to obey, it comes from God, right? So when, when I am leading my children, right, and I am bringing forth instruction that is expected to be obeyed, I am not doing that to make my life easier in the moment. I am doing it because God has instructed me. He has given me instruction on how to instruct my kids. All right? So I see, I see people all the time. I see parents. I see them interacting with their kids, and the kid is acting out, and they discipline the child right there to get the child to, to come into alignment in the moment, Right? And then I see them later, and that child is acting out again, right? And so part of the thing that we have to do when we bring instruction to our children is we have to do more than just go, hey, don't do that when I tell you not to do that, 
right? We have to help our children understand, don't do that, and here is why. Here's the impact in your life. Here's the the consequences that'll come down the road. So I'm not parenting for right now, is what I'm trying to get at. I'm parenting for tomorrow. I'm raising my children for tomorrow, not for right now. So it's not about, this idea of obedience is not about making my life comfortable and convenient, right? Because I I will tell you that really investing and teaching your children, right, it's uncomfortable and inconvenient. I don't know if you have children and you have ever noticed that there are times in life where you're so excited that you're about to do something as an adult, right? Or you've had some great, and you're just coming home, and it's like, man, this is going to be great. And then you've got one child, right, that undoes it all. They undo the whole thing, right? There's nothing convenient about that. And we have to remind ourselves, right, as parents, that, that we have a responsibility, Right? We have a responsibility to make that investment in our children. And let me tell you, if you are a child in here, okay, right, and you have mom and dad that are still in this role of life, right, if they love God, right, then the thing that they are doing when they're bringing instruction into your life is they are trying to help make you a better person. They're trying to help make you better. I use this language with my kids all the time. I am telling you, everything that I'm doing right now is because I am believing you are going to not just get by in life, but you're going to be a leader, you're going to be a great person, and one day you're going to be a great parent, right? So I'm constantly reinforcing those things. And then he says what? Do it in the Lord, God's instruction, for this is right. What does right mean? It is to be equitable, holy, more than beautiful. So there's just this incredible thing. He says, like, when you do this, like, there's just this incredible standard that's, that's beautiful. It's holy, right? Like, there is something from the outside that people will look at and go, man, well, I don't know what they're doing, but, but, but their family, their, their family dynamic is incredible. I want what they have. Now, unfortunately, and we get this sometimes, and, and I'm really trying to be careful not to brag because I do not think that I'm perfect or that my kids are perfect, right? We do a good job at hiding all the terror from you, um, right? But, but I have people all the time go, oh, you know, Pastor Jim, like, I just really admire, uh, you know, the type of father that you are, right? How do I do that? And then I talk about sacrifice, and the response is, oh, I can't do that. Well, all I can tell you is, is that there is the sacrifice and the intentionality that's, uh, of the investment is the thing that's bearing the fruit that you're seeing that you like. So if you're not willing to do that, I can't promise you what type of fruit you'll bear, right? I can't promise you. Because I, and here's the thing that I'll be really careful to tell you is I may not be doing it all exactly right because I'm still growing, right? People say all the time, you know, Pastor Jim, you need to do uh, you know, these uh, teaching series on, on parenting. And, and we've done some, right? But that is my least favorite thing to do. Because I have four kids and and I have come to this realization, right? None of them are the same. Nothing that I do to one works for the other. And so every single parenting book that you pick up out there, they are talking about what worked for some child in their life. But let me make you a promise that that book is not going to work in its fullness when executed on your children. Because parenting is relational, not educational. You have got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ if you want to do a good job at it because you are going to need some guidance in your life. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So what does this require? This requires a frame of mind that believes parents are of value. If you do not believe that mom and dad as a, as a uh, component of society are valuable, that parents should be given the benefit of the doubt, that parents are, are, are of benefit to us, then, then this isn't going to make sense to you. So rejecting mom and dad, right, then rejects all of the premise of what we're following. So, so, so we have to honor our father and our mother, and we have to do it in the way that Scripture says to do it. So check this out. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is approached, right? Verse 1, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do, you dis- why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So they come up and they go, have you not heard that this is what we do? And Jesus says, his response is, 
Why, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So the question is, is hold on, if the Word of God has given instruction, why are you deviating from that? And what does he use as an illustration? Well, check this out. For, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So Jesus says, look, here's what you tell people. You tell people that, hey, if your dad is a low-down, dirty slime ball, you don't really have to honor him. And Jesus says, this is what you're teaching people. That's not what the Word of God actually says. And so what does he say? He says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. So when we add these things in, when we go, well, you know, and, and, and I'm going to tell you, pastors can be guilty of this from the platform. When we go, well, surely that's not what it means right? Surely, because that would be uncomfortable, right? And maybe the, the question is not about whether or not we honor our parents, but maybe it's about understanding what honor is, right? I think that really is probably the shortcoming here, is really understanding what honor is. But this group of people are coming at him, and they're saying, well, you're not doing things the way that we do them. And he says, but I'm doing things the way that Scripture says to do them. And watch what he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So he says that you show up and you do the whole worship thing in vain. Why? Because you're teaching the doctrines of men. I got to tell you, like the last like 10 months, like this has just been so heavy on me. It's like, I got to get the word of God right. Why? Because there is just more and more that I am hearing from people going, well, we don't really believe that part of scripture, or we won't teach that part of scripture. Or when we get to this place in scripture, we're going to skip over it, or we're not going to talk about that topic. And that is what, that is, that is the ideas of men. That's people sitting around and saying, well, it's uncomfortable, or I don't agree with it, but if I were God, I would do it different. So, you know, we create our own doctrine, and he says, he says, you, do, you, you worship me in vain then, right? And the picture here is, is that honor your father and mother, right, means that you're going to have to figure out that God respects this, this office of mother and father, and he expects us to respect the office of father and mother. When we do this, when we begin to make all these different exceptions, we make it easy to attack Scripture. We make it easy to attack Scripture. One of the guys that I really like to listen to, his name is Vody Bauckham, and uh, he was being questioned recently uh, about, you know, a view that he has that's not popular in culture, and he said, hey, they asked him, you know, how do you justify this? And his response was, I don't have to justify anything. The Bible says it. So if you have an issue, take it up with God. Don't take it up with me. I'm, I'm sticking to the word, right? Now, if you have a problem with me sticking to the word, I can have a conversation with you about my conviction. But everything that flows out of scripture, right, is because I'm sticking to the word. And this is, the, this is really healthy for us, right? We can go, hey, listen, talk to God. Side note, and I just keep pushing these in as we're going, because there is such this idea right now that the Bible is not authoritative, that the Bible is not inerrant, it wasn't intended to be quoted and remembered, but inside of Scripture, we keep finding places where the people who, are, who the Scripture is about or who are writing it, they seem to believe that it's authoritative. Jesus believed the inerrancy of Scripture because he's quoting Isaiah at the, the church leaders of the day, so he believed it. Look, we must teach our children that it is okay to have relationships in which you obey without understanding, trust without sight, and follow when they aren't the lead. We have to teach our kids that's okay, right? We can have relationships where we can just be in a position of obedience. Because if we, can't, if we tell our kids that you just, you, there's nobody who has any say over you, I can tell you this, they will never learn to submit to the authority of God outside of God bringing correction to your teaching. 
And so what we need to be doing is we need to be able to say, hey, look, it's okay that there will be people in your life who you can trust, who have your best intentions at heart. They're there for you. And it is okay as a child to listen to what mom and dad are saying, right? Now, is this an exemption from toxic parents? It's not an exemption from toxic parents. Remember that Paul is writing to the church which is a group that, in this specific instance, they love Jesus. So among households that love Jesus, we are able to invest in our children in a way that we help them to understand that if you can identify a trustworthy person, then you can listen to a trustworthy person. And that you're not always going to get it right, so you should have people in your life who can come up to you and say, hey, you might be getting this wrong. Because if you don't get this, then when we rewind back into chapter 4 and he's talking about being in the church and submitting to one another, we're definitely not going to get that. Because we won't submit to anybody. We won't submit to any doctrine or teaching. So when we don't learn this as children, we struggle to do it as adults. And it is an imperative for us to function, not just in society, but if we're going to function within eternity as God intended. So back to Ephesians 6, verse 3. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is the promise, right? So this assumes that this group of new believers, Gentiles, on top of that, are familiar with the Old Testament, okay? So new believers, they're not Jews for the, for the bulk. There's definitely Jews that are in there. Church at Ephesus, filled with Gentiles. And he is assuming that they are familiar with the Old Testament because he begins to quote the Old Testament, right? This also makes another assumption for us, or I guess that really we can make the assumption because the Holy Spirit is not assuming anything. He already knows, hey, this is a group of people that that have read the Old Testament, so they've gotten saved, and they know they're looking at the context of Scripture, but also that the promises of the Old Testament are for today. And so this idea that says, oh, you know, the Old Testament, we don't need any of that, just stay in the New Testament. But then we find within the New Testament that the New Testament writers are are implicitly saying, you need to be going into the Old Testament, right? You need to be going into the existing doctrine, right? They don't call it the Old Testament, they just call it Scripture. We call it the Old Testament. We create the divide because of the two covenants, right? So that's the Old Testament. And they're going, hey, there's, there's a promise for you today that sits right there from, from uh, Moses' interactions with God. He gets the Ten Commandments on the stones, and we go, eh, God's fulfilled that law. It doesn't really matter anymore. And Paul's going, let me tell you something. There's a promise that's for you today inside of that. And he uses this. This is really crazy to me, that you may live long in the land. The land here, this, this language is actually referencing that which is provided by the Lord. Remember that he used this, this, I will give you the land, right? It's a promised land. And what does he say to them? He's telling the church in Ephesus, far removed from the idea of the promised land. They're under Roman rule. He says that you may live long in the land. What land? The land that God has promised you. And so what is your promised land? What territory are you destined for? It's through this obedience in Scripture that helps us to be able to fulfill all of those things that we feel like God is calling us to. And when we are disobedient, right, we run the risk of doing what? Spending 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. And so he uses this language. He says that you will live long in the land. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So uh, as husbands and wives, we have specific callings, and so do fathers and mothers, okay? So we talked about this last week, a husband and a wife, you have specific roles that you play, fathers and mothers. There are some things, men, that women are just going to be better at, and there are some things that men are going to be slightly better at. That's how I feel in my house anyway, right? Okay? So there are just some, some responsibilities that I have, right, that, that really, they may not fall onto my wife, not because they don't ever apply, but in this case, specifically because men are the first to abuse. And Paul talks about this. We talk about this in Romans 1, right? Men are the first to abuse a lot of things. Here talking about anger, right? So he says, do not provoke. Now, this word provoke is interesting because it is fierce anger. It is to enrage, 
okay? Remember when he starts talking to them about the different sins, and he's really talking about sexual sin, and he gets to this place, and we talked about how this is preached out of context all the time, right? It's like we, we go to Ephesians 4, 26, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, we've been in dialogue. Now we're going to jump into like a fortune cookie. Hey, can we pause for a moment and crack open the, look at this, be angry and do not sin. And so we teach entire things off of this verse, but within context, he's saying, hey, be careful about sexual sin. You need to be careful about the way that this temptation impacts you, it influences your life. And here's what you need to know. You need to be angry about sin. You don't need to be passive and complacent. He says, be angry. And we bro- I broke this down for you. You can go back and look at it. But this word here, and I, I talked to you guys about how that be angry and do not sin is different than the anger that's here. And if you look at it in the King James and some of those, they actually translate it as wrath, right? Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So anger being this like, man, I'm, I'm upset, I'm frustrated, but this anger is like, it's burning out of control, right? So I, I've got to get this thing under control. What's, what's interesting is that the same language that he uses here, right? This is the same language that he is using when he talks about fathers not pushing your children, right? Do not provoke them. Do not bring them to wrath. So you need to learn how to not let the sun go down on your wrath. When your anger gets like boiling hot, you've got to learn, okay, I've got to bring that thing back down, and I've got to do it quickly. It's not something that gets to fester, right? And then I have a responsibility not to be pushing my kids to that place, not to be provoking them. So fathers must learn to manage anger in front of their children. You have to learn how to do this. And, and I'm going to tell you, this is 100% applicable to me. When, I, when we first got married, right, I, I did not even understand that I had a temper. I didn't have a relationship in my life to even see how that could be expressed. And when I became aware of it, right, and I became aware of the fact that God wanted that to be a, a form of self-control in my life, it became something I began to take very seriously. I didn't have to, like, make a bunch of, like, you know, hoopla about it. I just had to start getting myself under control. And, and I say all the time, one of the ways that I did that was that when I would lose my cool, the very first thing I would do is I would just apologize and own it all. I lost my cool. I was wrong for doing it. Therefore, I'm wrong for everything that has led up to this moment, right? I just ate it. And, and I'm not just saying eating that there with my wife. I'm talking about with my kids. If I would lose my, my cool with, with my oldest, my son Isaac, I would turn right around. If I, if I could catch it within 30 seconds, I would stop and go, this doesn't make what you did right but what I just did was wrong, right? And what I began to understand was that as I would just grab a hold of it and pull it down, right, I became a better person and I was not in a place where I was pushing my kids to this wrath, to this place of being angry. And he says here, he says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline meaning education or training by means of correction, right? Okay, and then uh, instruction is admonition, counsel, or warning. So what is he saying? He's saying parents are the frontline educators in their children's lives. Like as a mom and a dad, you are the front line. I'm not saying that our, our teachers in our schools don't matter and that they don't have it difficult. They do, okay? And I get it. But the responsibility for frontline educating sits right there. The responsibility sits in your homes, If you're thinking to yourself, I don't want my kids to learn this particular philosophy or idea, that's on you to make sure that they are not being taught something that's incorrectly. And if you want them to be taught something that you think, man, they need this for the betterment of their life and the the schooling that they're getting isn't doing it, it's on you to do it. You are the discipline. You are the instruction. You are the one that is responsible for helping to guide them. It's not society's responsibility, right? It's not the encampment around us that they're the ones raising our kids. Yeah, there are times where we need help. But when I get home at the end of the day and it's time that I want to go kick up and watch something and eat a plate of nachos and wings, right? Sometimes I don't get to do that because what needs to happen is an investment in my children so that I can have conversations with them make sure that they're on the right path. Culture rejects truth. This is a consistent that we see throughout all of history. And now we're going to make a transition right here. We're going to make a transition from talking about mom and dad and the relationship with children, and we're going to start talking about slavery. 
What tethers them together is this word obedience. So he's been going through all of the areas of life that there's submission, and then he jumps in and he goes back, and he, I mean, he goes in and he begins to use this word obey, and he moves from a parent to a children. This is what makes this a difficult reality. So without actively involved spiritual covering, crazy beliefs are birthed, okay? If we do not have people that we can trust to be a spiritual covering in our lives, okay? And, and, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that there should be a pastor in your life that just has this, you know, carte blanche, do, say whatever they want, and you're just going to believe it. I'm saying that as you are a student of the Word, as you are diving in in your own time, you need somebody in your life that you can trust to help be a spiritual guide in your life. That's the responsibility that sets on pastors and teachers, all right? The shepherd is to be an aid in that, right? It doesn't absolve all responsibility from either party, but there needs to be some of that. What we see, and we see this within the church, that whenever there is a group of people who go out on their own and, and they just avoid spiritual covering, that is where we begin to see sin take root, right? Some of it can be egregious. Some of it can be annoying, right? I'll give you an example. The Bible was used to justify the act of polygamy being practiced by a community settled near the Great Salt Lake. Just before we go to civil war, there is a group of people who are using the Bible to justify new writings, right? Specifically, Paul says, if, hey, if anybody brings you a gospel other than the one that's been presented, even if it comes from an angel, it is not from God. And then you have a group of people who are using Scripture to justify some new form of gospel that has been brought by an angel, Okay? And what are they doing? They're practicing polygamy. From the outside, the church is going, man, that doesn't make any sense, right? But inside, they've bought into this doctrine. They are believing their own false teaching. And this is the same thing that began happening with farmers who were using the Bible to justify the violent abuse of slaves in the southern parts of the United States. Okay? It's just a reality. They took the Bible. I've shown you guys a copy of it. There was something that was called the Slave Bible, and they removed anything that talked about freedom, that talked about uh, uh, the Exodus. They removed all of this from Scripture, and they said, look, here's the Bible that you're allowed to read, right? Now, in, their, in some of their sick minds, they thought, well, the Bible isn't really authoritative, so it's okay for me to kind of use the parts I want to use. And that discipline, listen to what I'm saying, in both cases, that discipline led to egregious sin. And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you that that, that is how history will remember this moment for us if we abandon the canonization of Scripture. If we begin to just kind of take the pieces we want and don't want, we will develop an egregious society that history will look back on and go, look at what they did. So we've got to hold to Scripture. So check this out. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Bond servants. What is the word, right? You feel like, oh, well, maybe that means something other than a slave. Well, in the Greek, it's the same word that gets used for slave. So he's talking about slaves, all right? So he says, bondservants, obey, right? And I'll remind you, obey is not to submit. And so this is, this is Paul's using an illustration coming out of what even like Jesus talked about, about how Scripture gets manipulated, right? And he comes straight into this from parents. He comes straight into this talking about the, the, the position of the servant and the master. And he says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, I do want to pause and say that fear and trembling, like that almost in, in our society is, is, is given out to be like almost like a horror movie, right? Like, oh, man, you've got to be terribly afraid and cowering. That's actually not what the use of, of, of fear and trembling is historically has been, and it's not the intent of what's being communicated here in the Greek. In fact, remember, we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So fear is historically used as respect, right? So you 
feared the one that was uh, in charge because you had respect for them. And trembling is historically used as earnest reverence, okay? So it is not about cowering and running and feeling like you're afraid for your life. There's a different concept there, okay? And so we have to, to know this. Slavery in Rome did not look like slavery in the South, okay? They looked different. They looked different. Are there things that we can glean from here and apply to the cultural conversation today? Absolutely. But slavery was not the same. So Paul is calling, I think my battery died on this. If you, yeah, Paul is calling the slave, to be, the, the slave to be obedient as an outward expression of their faith in Christ. This is, this is not... This is not a fun thing for us to break down, but that's what, that's what the Scripture is saying. The Scripture is saying that the slave's responsibility right now and their position is to be obedient, and they do that as an outward expression of their faith in Christ. So by being obedient in the moment, right, they are a reflection of who Christ is and what Christ can do. So let's look at context. Paul believes that slaves should be free men. We know this already. When we look at Philemon 1, we see that he says to the master, you should set the slave free. So we know that that's already an ideology he, 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 he wants. He wants to see slavery come to an end. When we were in Galatians, right, Paul uh, declares that before God there is neither slave nor free. Next slide. Uh, and that's in Galatians 3. So he acknowledges that before God, there isn't even a separation, right? There, that, that God doesn't see these things, okay? Next slide. If we are attempting to bring heaven here, which that should be our goal, then the debate around slavery is conclusive, back, is conclusive in its determination that God does not advocate for slavery. So there's not an advocation for slavery that's taking place inside of Scripture. Paul is talking now to this church in Ephesus, and he is to the understanding that there are people who are slaves that are attending the church. So they're showing up, and they're a part of the body, but they are slaves. Listen to what he says here. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So this is more than an outward obedience as an act of compliance, okay? He's not saying like, hey, put on a good show. He's saying like, you need to do some internal work, and right now you are in a position where you're not in charge, right? Why is that? It is because of the law of the land. So they could sit there and say all that they want. They could sit there and go, you're free, run, find, a, find freedom. You need to understand that at this time, much like what we saw here in the United States, they, slaves were marked, right? Oftentimes with branding. So it wasn't like they were just able to go out and, and, and hide because if anybody saw the branded mark on them, then they knew that they were slaves. And the Roman Empire was perfectly fine, especially with non-Roman citizens being slaves. So the invitation for you to run, right, was an, almost certainly an invitation for you to die. And the question that, that must have been being made was, at, in what area here is the kingdom of heaven most greatly benefited? Bitterness is not exempted because of an evil master. That is something that really hits me. The expectation that in my life, when, when there are people in charge that are saying and doing things that I don't like, I can get bitter. I'm not exempted from that. Bitterness is sin, right? So if the Bible is authoritative, the Bible is true, we don't create doctrines of men and do our own thing, bitterness is wrong. If I'm in a place I don't want to be and I allow bitterness to set in, I'm in sin. And here's the beautiful thing. Favor is not exempted because of an evil master either. 
right? When we are walking out the, the, the instructions of God, what does it say? The Scripture says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of God. Now, do we immediately create our own, like, form of legalism in that and go, well, the righteous man is the free man, and, and he's the wealthy man, and he's the one that's, he's got all, everything he needs, and so he's really sitting here thinking, like, which way do I want to go? And, and he's got lots of choices, and so he's the one that God's guiding. No, 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 no. No, no, no. The steps of a righteous man from the pit to the palace— Joseph, right? His own family took him, right? This young Hebrew boy threw him in a pit, faked his death, sold him into slavery. He ends up uh, in a place of, of position in Potiphar's house, right? So he's in Potiphar's house, and, and, and he's doing everything right. And then he's, he, he has Potiphar's wife who's trying to seduce him. He's the slave. And what does he do? He says, no. I'm sorry, who will that not honor? He doesn't go, hey guys, I really love God and God's not really into this thing and so I shouldn't be doing this. It's definitely an acceptable thing. You know what he says though is he says this would not honor Potiphar. Potiphar wasn't a good man, right? Potiphar was the master, the slave owner. But he says this wouldn't honor him. And so what happens? He runs. She says, oh, he came on to me, right? And what does Potiphar do? He honored Potiphar, but nonetheless, Potiphar didn't believe it, and he had him thrown into prison. But let me tell you something. Favor is not exempt. You can have an evil master, but if you will serve God and walk out whatever season that is, he ends up from that place in prison to becoming the right hand of Pharaoh. A godless leader, right, takes the man of God and says, there is nobody with more authority in this land except for me when it comes to you. Total authority. I, I can't tell you why it works this way, except that the Scripture says that this is what we're called to do. We're called to serve, and we're called to walk these, these situations out. And then he says here in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is born their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So, he's addressing masters who he must assume are actually in the church. And I think that we get this single statement here, right? There's nothing that breaks it down. There's no real big discussion around it. And I, I think that, and this is just me reflecting, I, I think that this indicates how few believers are found among the masters, and, and I think that what we will find in eternity is that eternity will be filled with people who were slaves on earth. And very few who were masters on earth will find their way into eternity. Why? Because that corruption that allowed them to continue to exert their hate, their anger, and their violence, right, prevented them from knowing God. And God, multiple times in Scripture, there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, I do not prophesy in your name. Do I not cast out demons? He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, right? He says, hey, you do these things. You create doctrines of men, and you worship in vain. So we know there can be a, a slew of people out there who go, yeah, I'm an upstanding, you know, I'm a deacon in my church. I'm a Christian, right? And, and occasionally they get busted out for being the worst of the worst. So the expectation is that we listen to what the Word of God has to say. So, verse 9, masters. What is the master? Well, uh, in the Greek, uh, it is, go ahead and go to the next slide, it is the controller, supreme in authority, Lord. When he uses the word master, he is using the word here to talk about this absolute authority that rests with this person. It is a worldly authority because he breaks it down saying that you are only a master here in this small moment of time because there is only one true master and he is master over you, right? So at this point, every generation in the history of the world had been taught that slavery was justified. This is just a reality. At the time that Jesus comes on the scene, he's resurrected, the gospel is spreading. You have children being raised in homes, being told, hey, you're going to be a slave one day. That's how society works. Hey, you're going to own slaves one day. That's how society works. 
And so it was, the, it was the norm. It was abnormal. There had only been a few very small pockets of civilization that had done anything to begin to set slaves free. It just wasn't the norm. So culturally, they have this wired in them. So what does Paul do? Paul starts off and he says, hey, parents, you've got to raise your children up right. Because if you don't instruct them and teach them, they're going to buy into ideologies that put us in the position that we're in right here. Let's talk about slaves and masters for a moment because there's this huge complexity now because the law says that the slave is going to be the slave and the master has a responsibility to maintain the slave. And so we're trapped inside of this and until that can break, right, here's how it functions. But children have got to know the truths of Scripture. Let's talk about the United States of America for a moment. So we're setting course next Sunday, the 4th of July. Uh, it'll be a celebration of our nation. We're going to do it here at church. We've got a free t-shirt for everybody who's here that Sunday. We've got videos that we're going to be running this week because, I, listen, I am passionate. I have always been passionate about uh, our nation, our founding fathers. I marvel at the integrity that so many of them have had, and I, I get I get confused by some of the decisions that they made. But here's what I know, is I know that the United States has done so much good for the world. Not saying we haven't done any bad, but I go on mission trips, I go around the world, people from other parts of the world say things like, we are thankful for the United States of America. The United States of America gives us hope that there is one day a chance that we could experience freedom like this, right? Nobody wants to allow us to say things that need to be said because we don't have the First Amendment. So there is just so much positive influence. And I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But we're going to be moving into this. So let's talk about the United States for a moment. So Many marked the publication of Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica that came out in 1687 as the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment. This is important for us to understand. The Age of Enlightenment was a, a, a season of about 200 years where the way people thought began to shift, right? Most of that they attribute to the fact that there was more and more access to information, right? So books were being brought out. People were getting access to them like they never had before in the history of the world. So people were becoming more uh, learned, more educated, and it brought them to a place where knowledge was expanding. So in Europe, knowledge was compounding at an incredible rate with people beginning to ask if what they had been told was true. This is always a good thing. Is the thing that I'm being told true, right? I, I want to encourage you to do that when you hear me preach on Sunday, and I want to encourage you to do that when you hear a politician speak on your favorite news network, right? Is what you're being told true, right? Because here's the reality of the situation. There are a lot of people who do not speak truth, right? So this is a good thing. For many who drew the conclusion that there was no God, they sought to bring radical change to their culture by means of implementing societal reforms. So you had a group of people who birthed up and they were atheist or agnostic, they rejected God, they rejected Christendom specifically, and they began to want to implement societal reforms, right? All of those reforms were based on theories. Hey, I think that if we do this, it'll look like this, right? Okay, ultimately we end up with Karl Marx with his theory on communism, it gets implemented and we see it's a complete and total train wreck. Like, I'm sorry, I know that there are people who think, oh, well, you know, Marx said some good things. Ultimately, Marx was anti-Christian to the point where he thought Christianity needed to be wiped off the face of the earth. So I'm not going to partner with somebody that wants to get to the finish line and then finish me off, right? So, so Karl Marx is one of these, right? And so all these social experiments were beginning, okay? Now, those reforms led many who saw reason as more proof of God's existence to seek a new place to call home so as to practice their beliefs in freedom, right? All right? And this led them to what we call the new world, right? So we're talking about this entire area from uh, Canada down through South America. They began to come, and they came in the hope of religious freedom, right? The ability to be able to live their lives as they believed was proper. So you have this flooding of people. They're pouring out of Europe and other parts of the world at this point. Why? Primarily because of opportunity, right? There's this, there's this ruling class that is demanding things be done a certain way, it always benefits them, and they're done with it. And so they're willing to risk the lives of their families to come across an, 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 an ocean that 
up until that point, they all thought it was the end of the earth, right? They're going to fall off the edge. They were willing to go out and face monsters that we call sharks and whales today and come to an area that was completely unknown with reports of disease that was wiping out entire villages, uh, uh, people who already lived in some of those areas who were wiping out villages. They were, they were willing to do all these things because they themselves wanted to experience freedom and have opportunity. Were there good people among them? Absolutely. Were there evil people among them? Absolutely, right? So there's no doubt you're going to go back in history and be able to read that there was some evil acts that were committed by certain people. Now, the age of reason is in full swing when a group of young men and women from all over the world decide they want to forge their own way, right? Okay, some saw Scripture as authoritative and some saw it as suggestive. And so this creates a divide and that brings us right into the founding of the United States of America. You have the majority of this land, okay, they were some form of Christian, right? And, and we get told all the time that that's simply not true. Uh, there is a uh, wall builders uh, is an organization based out of Texas. They own more original documents from the founding fathers than any museum in the world, right? Primarily, uh, David Barton says, because when museums get a hold of documents from uh, founding fathers, they put them up so nobody can see them. They don't allow people to have access to them. He argues that one of the reasons is, is because, you know, if in essence you had access to all their emails, what you find is that when these people were writing all the time, they were constantly talking about Jesus and the impact of the kingdom. And they were, so people that we would herald as being atheists may have been an atheist at one point in their life, but at this certain season, they become a believer. That doesn't really fit a, a, a narrative that's consistent with what we want to teach. And so we hide those letters. So you can go to that website. He has tons of videos. Um, he has some great things. He's come on and uh, Comedy Central uh, with the intent of being roasted. And then he'll like pull out a, uh, uh, a letter from George Washington. And of course, everybody's like freaking out. Like you brought an actual, yeah, yeah, yeah. And here he talks about Jesus. What? No, he didn't believe in Jesus. Yeah, he believed in Jesus, right? Okay, so, so you have this happening, right? There's a divide. Some believe in scripture, some, eh, it's, it's influential, right? So slavery was something that was still a cultural norm in the land, but already many were demanding it be uh, abolished. Now, we have a collection of newspapers that are pre-Civil War here in the back. If you ever want to see them, we've got them framed. And they are actual, uh, when Congress would meet, now we go and record it and we can watch the congressional meetings. They had to go out and, you know, somebody had to sit there and write all that out, right? So you can read the debates that were happening on the Congress floor. And there was a slew of people who were demanding slavery be abolished long before we get to the Civil War, long before the Constitution is actually even implemented. There is a demand for slavery to be ended. But there is another group of people, make no mistake, and they were the ones that had the, the money, the wealth, the authority that were pushing for slavery to be continued. So it was, a, it was a divide that existed. So George Washington said a few things. I never mean, unless some particular circumstance should compel me to it, to possess another slave by purchase, it being among my first wishes to see some plan adopted by the legislature by which slavery in the country may be abolished by slow, sure, and imperceptible degrees. So George Washington wrote out, wrote in his letters that he wanted to see slavery come to an end, okay? Another quote, there is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for this abolition of slavery, but there is only one proper and effectual mode by which it can be accomplished, and that is by legislative authority. So he is making the argument that laws needed to be implemented in order for slavery to properly be dissolved. Now, it is 100% true. Age 11, George Washington inherits slaves. Okay, so from age 11 on, George Washington had slaves in his life the entire time. It's a conundrum to me that he moves into the Civil War and he begins to be so greatly influenced by people like Lafayette who were hardcore abolitionists, hardcore abolitionists. He is influenced by them. He is stirred by them. He begins to say, this is wrong. It's got to be ended. But he doesn't end it personally. Now, if we go and look at his writings, we know there was a lot of internal conflict going on, and I, I want to talk about that for a moment. But before I do, Phyllis Wheatley um, uh, well, uh, was a slave, and she wrote a poem, and this is just an excerpt from it, A Crown, A Mansion, go, go back, a, 
a crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine with gold unfading, Washington be thine. Whatever was going on at the time, and he's wrestling with this, you also have people who are slaves that love Washington. They're not even his slaves, some of them, right? But those that were, so, so there are, there's a mixed bag of emotions going on when we actually go back and read these people's writings, okay? So some of the things that George Washington wrestled with were, uh, would families be separated, right? So if he emancipated slaves, now in his specific condition, he had his slaves, he married a woman whose husband had died and she had inherited slaves and it was in a trust and she didn't have the authority to release the slaves. All that they could do is be handed down through inheritance to the next generation. This was the law of the land at the time, right? This is why George Washington is sitting here going, man, we've got to change the laws because the laws are preventing some of these things from happening. But even so, right? He sits here and he writes letters and he's like, okay, so these people have intermarried. Now they have families. Which kids go where? Do families get torn apart? What economic opportunities are there, right? So if we just end this thing, then how do we create a way, a means by which these freed slaves will have income? The proper way, which he says, is that they would be hired and given opportunities just like anybody else. But the problem is there are so many angry slave owners that they wouldn't do that. If they were forced to let their slaves go, then they would just let their slaves wallow away. This was a conflict for him. How could he pay for their emancipation? Even to emancipate them, each slave, there was a cost that had to be paid for that. And believe it or not, George Washington was not a wealthy man. Finally, would we survive a war on the issue? right? Because he knew that if, if the top leaders of the day began to just emancipate slaves, that there would be another group of people in this volatile new nation that would go to war over it, right? That sentiment lasted all the way to the Civil War. Now, this is the problem, right? It brings us to the question, what would you have done? Because I can tell you, right, on my morality level and my pedestal that I live on, I would like to think what I would have done, right? I would have said, no, this is wrong, and I'll do this, right? But the longer that I live, the more that I realize that there are times in my life where I haven't always done the right thing. And I, I can't tell you why George Washington didn't just throw it to the wind. I would like to believe, based on what I've been taught in school, that there was so much respect for the man that he would have led the way. That's what I would like to believe, but I don't understand all the concepts and the nuances of it. But I do know this, that slavery is a sin, that it's wrong in the eyes of God, right? But there were too many who sat in silence. I mentioned Lafayette. He wanted to go and buy entire colonies of slaves just so he could set them free. Like post-Civil War, he actually at times was trying to convince George Washington to go in with him and buy slaves just so that they could set them free. He was passionate about seeing slavery ended, right? Now the question is, are we any different today? right? Because there is a world that is still trafficking human beings right now. It's still happening. And I know that we have our issues here in our nation, but a lot of some of the hardcore trafficking is happening in other parts of the world. I, I read a report the other day that Libya right now has open-air slave trade. Like right now, they are there. You can show up and buy a human being that is in chains in an open air market through bidding because the country is so destabilized. Right? It's problematic. And I'll close with this Paul is speaking to Christians, some husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, even slaves and masters, reminding them that, there are, that they are to offer each other mutual respect, and walk in unity. I can't give you answers. I cannot tell you why some of these really difficult decisions were made. And, 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 and I, am, I read some of these things, and I think to myself, like, these were really incredible people, and some of their decisions were flawed. But hindsight is 20-20. And I just have to tell you that even at the points in my life where I've felt like I've got it all figured out, I look back and go, no, that was a bad decision. That was a bad decision, and it's a difficult reality. But let me tell you this. The world is watching. The world is watching today. What will you do? What will you say? Who will you be? Will the church be unified, or will the church be divided over these cultural topics? 
And will we see people who walk away and begin to establish their own doctrines? And will we ultimately see groups that begin to settle and create their own new types of sin, from slavery to polygamy? Let's stand to our feet as we close. Let's stand to our feet. Let me tell you something. God is good. His word is true. His word is true, and it may be difficult, and it may not make sense at times, but his word is true, and it is consistent, and it brings life, and the favor of God is so desperately needed in our lives, and I want it for you. Let's bow our heads right now as we close. Listen, when we're done, if you want prayer, there will be an opportunity in the back with the prayer ministry team. If you want Jesus to be Lord of your life, we're going to give you that opportunity. We want to pray with you. If you're sick in body, if you're just going through a difficult season, we want to pray with you. Right now, though, I just want to pray over you. Just pray that the Lord would bless you, that the Lord would lift you up, that the Lord would encourage you, that the Lord would enlighten your understanding, that the Lord would draw you into His Word, and that His Word would bear fruit and bear truth, that it would resonate in our hearts. I just pray, Lord, that that the legalism that can creep its way into our lives, Lord, that you could help shake those things out so that we would be in a position of not trying to always be, trying to be right in the, in the mindset of being over somebody, but being right in the position of being under you, that you would find us to be right. So allow us to lay down our preconceptions, our own deceptions, and we thank you for all you do. In your mighty name, amen, amen. We love you guys. As always, go change your world.